So before anything else, in somewhat of a less traditional way, I want to give you the three points I'm going to go over today with three pairs of words. These three pairs are expectation versus reality, trouble versus peace, and doubt versus trust. You see, there's a tension that we walk in today, today, beginning our reading, where the disciples are in the room discussing the accounts that they have heard of the risen Christ. Because with a little bit of context, if you remember, last week was Easter, uh, last Sunday being Easter Sunday. And here at Spring Hill, we spent a little bit of time at the end of Mark's gospel where we read about the female disciples going to the tomb only to find it empty and to be approached by an angel telling them that Jesus had risen. In Mark's gospel, uh, where we left off, it ended a little bit abruptly, but if you pick it back up in Luke, you can see that the female disciples who were there had actually ran to go and tell the rest of the disciples. Um, but they weren't the only ones that had a, a strange experience like this. You see, there was two more disciples who were leaving Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus himself began to walk alongside them. Uh, if you've never heard this story before, the fascinating details that they did not recognize it was Jesus that was walking alongside them. He even asked them what had happened the last few days as if he didn't know. And uh, they didn't recognize him. They, they began to tell him and he, he began to expand from the scriptures why these things had to happen. And once they had about arrived, still not knowing it was Jesus, they invited him for a meal. And Jesus, despite being the guest, took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And that was the moment that his disciples' eyes were opened and they recognized him. And right then he disappeared from their midst. So these two, just like the woman, ran to tell the rest of the disciples what had happened. And the conversation going on between all these disciples is where we step into in our reading today. So now that we're caught up, if you would turn to me, turn with me to Luke 24, 36 through 49. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. Hear now the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So, who here likes surprises? I'm, I, I can say I kind of like surprises. You know, it depends on the, the nature of them, I guess. But um, I remember... A few years ago, my brother was out at college in Washington. The rest of my family was living in Colorado. And as a family, minus my brother, we decided to go to Great Wolf Lodge. If you know, or if you don't know, it's uh, basically an indoor amusement park. 
got water slides and uh, mini golf. It's, it's really fun. But that's besides the point. The reason I bring this up is that we sat down and after a couple of minutes, a gentleman approached me from behind and he said, can I get you guys anything else? I remember thinking it was odd because we hadn't ordered anything at all. But trying to be polite, I turned around to say no thank you. And to my surprise, my brother was standing right in front of me. It was awesome. Definitely a surprise. And I can tell you there's not many moments in my life I've been more surprised than I was in that moment. But despite the fact that I was standing there, believing him to be thousands of miles away, there he was. Peace to you is the greeting that Jesus gave his disciples as he made his surprise appearance and like I'd like to point out, I'd like to point out in John's gospel, he also gives us the detail that the room was locked, which stresses not only that Jesus' appearance was a surprise, but that it was a supernatural one, which gives us some understanding as to why the disciples initially believed he was a ghost or a spirit in verse 37. Now, despite the surprise and even the supernatural means by which Jesus entered into their presence, I want to point out that there's a significant difference between my experience at Great Wolf Lodge and the disciples' experience in this room. And the difference is this. The disciples knew. For me, I had no idea and had no prior information that would lead me to believe that my brother would be visiting from Washington to surprise us. The disciples, on the other hand, though, had been told by Jesus time and time again that the death, his death would not be the end of his ministry and that he would be back. He points this out himself in verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you. And here is where we find our first point of tension. Because if Jesus had told them this, then why were the disciples surprised now that he was standing in their midst? Expectation. Specifically, expectation versus reality. The first pair of words that I had you note. I believe the reasonable answer to why the disciples were not only surprised, but scared and doubtful was because of their expectations. But as I talk about expectations, I want to make it clear, expectations aren't always a bad thing. They're actually fairly helpful at times, uh, our ability to observe what's going on. And based on our expectations, it allows us to fit things together. For example, if you see a rain cloud before you leave your house, you can expect it's going to rain. You can grab an umbrella. If you hear a knock on the door, you can usually expect a visitor. Or if you see flashing lights behind you while you're driving, you can usually expect that... <coughs> You're getting pulled over. Uh, but despite this, uh, the disciples here, what they had experienced, what they had observed was the one they believed to be the Messiah. Dead. Crucified. And they expected him to stay that way. That seems to be the obvious conclusion, right? We can certainly see this is what they expected. The female disciples were on their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, expecting his body to be there. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were leaving, expecting Jesus' ministry to be over. And the disciples in that room, the rest of them, maybe we don't know exactly what they were expecting, but we can certainly see that they hoped, they hoped that what they were hearing was true, despite their doubt. And as he does, Jesus completely blew away the expectations of every single one of them in that room. And not only that, I would argue that he's blown away the expectations of every single person that's heard the gospel since. The likelihood of Jesus walking out of that tomb was impossible. But where the impossible starts is often where Jesus begins his work. 
The hardest part about the impossible becoming possible is not Jesus' ability to make it so, but it's my ability to believe that he can. Because if all I ever expect of Jesus, if all I ever expect that he can do is what I imagine he can do, I'll often be let down. But not because Jesus disappoints, but it's because he won't live up to my expectations. Or maybe more appropriately put, he won't live down to my expectations. And this realization, as concerning as it may first sound, is actually a significant step in our relationship with Christ. The realization that it's not Jesus' job to submit to my will, but my job to submit to Jesus' will. It's not my expectations that define the reality of Christ. It's the reality of Christ that teaches me to let go of my expectations and to focus on him. I can't let my expectations of Christ blind me to the reality of Christ. Because despite everyone's expectations, Jesus did not live and he certainly did not die because of what humans expected or what humans willed, but because of what the Father willed. And both of these were a part of a bigger plan that Jesus invited the disciples into, one that the disciples had no categories for, and that's exactly where the disconnect became apparent. In Isaiah, we hear God speak these words. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, there will always be who I think Jesus should be and who he is, who he truly is. But luckily, we have somewhere to look to learn more about who Jesus is. We have his word. This is significant because I believe the more time we spend in his word, the bigger Jesus becomes to us and the smaller the gap between who I think Jesus is and who he truly is becomes. And who he truly is will always go above and beyond my limited imagination of who a good God is and how capable he is of healing the brokenness inside of me and in the world around me. Seeing Jesus for who he is, for who he's told us he is, and for who he's revealed himself to be, instead of allowing my expectations to get in the way, is the first step to finding peace within my troubles and trust within my doubt. So I want to take a look at the next pair of words that I, I had you know in the beginning. Trouble versus peace. When I talk about trouble, this trouble is not being in trouble. It's being troubled. Um, trouble as in being unsettled, agitated, or maybe even disturbed. I think often the situation where this kind of trouble comes about when this takes place is something happens that we don't expect. And we usually didn't hope for and we usually don't have control over. I'm sure all of you have had moments like this where you face an unfavorable circumstance and you've had no control over it. I remember I had one of these experiences. I was road tripping from Oklahoma to Colorado at the end of 2020. I made it about halfway when my car stopped working. I was, I was around Wichita, Kansas. Uh, I don't know anything about cars, so I had no idea what was wrong and I had no idea how to fix it. Um, and unfortunately, it was Sunday, so all the mechanics were closed. Uh, so I pulled off and... Uh, as one does, I called my parents to try to figure out what I could do. Um, my mom mentioned that she had extended family that lived in Wichita, so she said she'd try to get a, get a hold of them. And uh, as luck would have it, one of her cousins was actually only about 15 minutes away, and in no time, he pulled up with his wife and their Jeep, and he got out, shook my hand, and started poking around my car. 
Uh, and within no time, he, he'd figured out what was wrong, uh, got the part replaced, and it was up and running again. It wasn't perfect, but it got me back to Colorado. Uh, the whole situation was crazy because within a couple of hours, I'd gone from having no idea what to do with no hope to being right back on my way, filled with awe and gratefulness over the whole situation. To this day, it sticks with me because I so clearly saw God's sovereignty over the situation. It helped me to see that even in a situation that I can't control, that I can't fix, God is not only able, but he is willing to do so. It was an amazing reminder of God's love. Why are you troubled, Jesus asked in verse 38. And if I'm going to be honest, it may seem obvious as to why the disciples were troubled. Over the last few days, they'd seen him be killed. And over the last few hours, they'd heard word that he was alive again. I'm sure their emotions were complex. But despite the complexity of their emotions, there is a reason why Jesus is asking, why are they troubled? Because I, as I pointed out, Jesus had told them he would be back. So this trouble, though it may be understandable, is not what Jesus had left his disciples with at all. And it's certainly not what he had come back to give them. You see, Jesus saw their lives and their hearts. He had given them everything that they needed to still find peace within this trouble, within this circumstance. You can see in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, I have told you these things that you may have peace in me, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, in John chapter 16, Jesus had explained that in a little while he would be gone that his disciples would be scattered and that they would abandon him. But then in a little while longer, he would be back. He had laid out his plan, both his departure and his return for his disciples so that they may find peace in this circumstance. But instead of finding peace in the words of Christ, they allowed what was happening around them to take control of their minds. The apparent chaos of everything happening and the apparent lack of control both they had and they thought that Jesus had over the situation sent them spiraling into despair instead of focusing on Christ's gift of peace. One of the most vital statements from Christ I believe is often overlooked concerning his death and his resurrection is in John 10, 17. Jesus said these words concerning his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up. This charge I have received from my father. So you can see there was no lack of control over the situation. With Jesus, there never is. Even in the garden during Jesus' arrest, when Peter tried to spring into action to save him, Jesus stopped him and he said, Do you not think that if I appealed to my father, that he would send more than 12 legions of angels? But then how, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The disciples continuously struggled to look beyond their circumstance to the power and peace of Christ. In this life, you will have trouble. Jesus knew this. He pointed it out. In our lives, they're filled with trouble. They're filled with circumstances beyond our control. We lose jobs. Relationships are broken. People die. But Jesus never denied this reality. He instead offered himself as the solution. When circumstances in our lives trouble us, it's not our job to overcome them because Jesus already has. Jesus stood before his disciples and he offered his hands and feet for them to touch and to feel, to prove not only that he was standing there, but that every truth, every promise that he had given them 
was fulfilled and would always be fulfilled. Because when looking at life causes me trouble, it's the act of looking at the hands and feet of Christ that brings the remedy. We get to experience the same Jesus that the disciples did in that room standing before them. Though we may not, to get, to, may not get to experience him physically, we may not get to touch him, he's still revealed to us. This book is Christ standing in front of us from beginning to end. It's the story of Christ and the proof that he is trustworthy. The word of God is alive and active, giving us a place to look beyond our circumstances, to meet with Jesus and to remember who he is, that he has overcome the world and that his victory can never be undone. We may encounter Christ in a different way than those disciples in that room, but it's not about how we encounter Christ. It's about how we respond to him when we do. That we would repent, that we would be forgiven, knowing that what Jesus had said will come to be and that every promise he makes he will keep. And he doesn't need to be standing in front of us for us to feel his love and to feel his safety and to feel his peace. Because no matter our physical proximity to our Savior, what he offers is always the same. It is and always will be by grace through faith in Christ alone. And knowing this, we can find peace within our troubles and sufferings, knowing that if we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with him. It is a humble submission to the power and authority of Christ and his work on the cross. This is where we look to remember his peace, despite our circumstances and despite our expectations, despite our trouble. So whenever I find myself asking the question, can I find peace within the situation that I don't understand? The answer is yes, because Jesus is always in control, even when I don't understand it. The solution is not to focus on the circumstance, but to focus on Jesus. There is a way in which I don't understand that only God can reveal to me. But even if he doesn't, he's also a God that I know that I can trust with that which I don't understand. With the things that I can't see and the ways that I can't comprehend. So finally, I want to shift into looking at the last pair of words I gave you in the beginning. Doubt versus trust. Doubt and trust go hand-in-hand -hand in our everyday lives. Most decisions we make are based off of whether we trust something or someone or not. A few weeks ago, we went to Spire Climbing with the youth group. Uh, it was a fun time. Uh, I spent most of the time supervising, but I got on a few routes myself. And uh, if you're not familiar with the auto belay system at a climbing gym, it's basically a machine that holds you so that when you fall back, it'll catch you and guide you down. I'd used these before when I was younger, but... The first climb that I did when I got to the top, I found myself frozen. Uh, all the irrational thoughts began to flood into my mind. I started to doubt the machine's ability to catch me. Because to be fair, I am a lot bigger and heavier than I was when I was a kid. Uh, so despite my knowledge, my intellectual knowledge that this machine was made to catch me, despite all the adults around me in the gym doing the same exact thing, I still was hesitant. Eventually, trying not to embarrass myself, obviously I let go and it caught me. Uh, but still, every single climb I did that day, I was still a little bit nervous. I was still a little bit doubtful that when I let go, that it could hold me. This is exactly where Jesus finds his disciples when he appears to them. He finds them doubting. Jesus asks them in verse 38, why do doubts arise in your heart? When he appears in the room, he senses their fears and doubts. They're afraid not only because they think he's some kind of ghost, but because they doubted him. 
They doubted the plan that Jesus had submitted himself to. You can imagine them thinking, surely if this was the son of God, he would not have died. But Jesus demonstrated the exact opposite point. It was only the son of God who could have died and in his death dismantled the power of death completely. It had to be this way. Not only because Jesus said so, but because it was promised from the very beginning of scripture. Jesus not only gives his hands and his feet to his disciples as proof that they could trust his plan, he opens their minds to the scripture. In verse 44 and 46, he says, These are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his names to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. What we have, what we hold here, is a promise. It's not just a promise, it's the promise. It's the promise from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. From the first pages of the Bible, as humans fell victim to sin, the promise from God that one day, the evil that entered into the world through Adam and Eve would be destroyed by one of their descendants. The seed of the woman, the one whose heel would be bruised and who would crush the head of the serpent. We see this in Genesis 3.15. We see the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him and his offspring. We see the promise of the suffering Savior in Isaiah 53, who would be pierced for our transgressions, but who would also provide us healing through his wounds. We see the promise to his people in exile that that would not be the end of the story and that there would be a king from the line of David that would reign eternally. The promise of Psalm 10, Psalm 1610, that God would not allow his holy one to see decay. I like what pastor and author Tony Morita says. He says, Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. The Gospels end with Jesus' resurrection, and that changes everything. This was the plan from the beginning. This was the plan that Jesus came to fulfill. This was the hope for all of creation, that despite the doubt of those even closest to Jesus, it's the one that he knew had to be fulfilled. It's the plan that he knew he had to submit himself to. So despite the appearance of defeat, and the supposed lack of control Jesus seemed to have, there he was, hands open for his disciples to feel again, the Son of God, the Messiah, there to rid the disciples of any doubt of who he truly is, who he truly was, and who he truly is to us. The true Christ is not only one, it's not only who he says he is, but who he's shown himself to be. And he has shown us that when God speaks, he acts, and that when Jesus makes a promise, he will keep it. So it's not a matter of if I can trust Christ, it's a matter of why I can trust Christ. Because he's given us everything that we need, because he is everything that we need. I like what J.C. Ryle says about doubt. He says, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. The resurrected Christ is the peace within our troubles and our truly trustworthy friend when life leads us to doubt. Because when life leads us to doubt, Christ leads us to hope. No expectation, trouble, or doubt will ever take away from the work of Christ on the cross.
the price is paid. And Jesus appeared to his disciples to confirm this. And he sent them out to preach it. And now we get to do the same. We are the light of the world. We are the city on the hill that is Christ. And we get to share this good news. The good news that Christ has overcome the world. And so now, no matter what happens in our lives, through him we no longer have to worry. Because we know the ending of the story. The story ends with Jesus on the throne and his beloved at his feet. This is the ending and this plan will not fail. How do we know? Because it never has. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate proof of that. It's the ultimate proof that there's nothing outside of the control of our God. And there's nothing that can stand in between him and us and his love. So remember this the next time Jesus doesn't meet your expectations. Remember this, when your circumstances cause you to be troubled, when your hearts cause you to doubt. Because with Jesus, defeat becomes victory, and death becomes new life, and the impossible becomes just a miracle waiting to happen if the Father wills it so, because what is impossible with man is possible with God. So to each and every one of you, for all of us, I want us to imagine we're the disciples in that room. We're scared, we're troubled, we're doubting, but despite all of this, Jesus is still standing in front of us with his hands wide open. He wants you to know that the work is finished and that all you need to do is trust him and to fall into his arms. So the question is simply this, what's holding you back? Whatever it is, Jesus can take it. And it's not just because he has to, it's because he wants to. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, he says, he's not asking for your strength. He has plenty of that on his own. He's asking for your weakness because he has none of that. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for your peace. Thank you for giving us certainty of your love. Thank you for sending your son to die for us so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, that we would receive this free gift of life with you. I pray for those who heard this message, those who are listening, that your words would touch them and that they would respond. I pray for all of us that you would help us to lie down, lay down our expectations to lay down our troubles and our doubts and to simply fall at your feet. I pray that as we move into this week that you would give us boldness to preach this good news, to share it, to give it to the world that so badly needs it. So Lord, I just, I thank you again for everyone who is here. I thank you again for your word. Thank you again for your love and your peace. I just pray that in our lives, Lord, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.